0: Well, hallelujah, yeah, yeah, well, I am absolutely overjoyed to be sharing this message with you this morning. Like um, Carlin said, Christy and I have been coming here now for only a handful of months, um, but we have absolutely fallen in love with the people in this church. I have to say, we've fallen in love with the people of this church so kind, giving, generous—you um, know—we have a big family, so it is a big deal for us to be invited somewhere. We've been invited three places for dinner already, and so we're just—we're just excited to be a part of what God is doing in landmark. This is this is our home church as it stands right now, and we're excited. Well, praise God! Is anybody excited to be in the house of the Lord this morning? I oh, am. Yeah. I really am. I am excited to talk to you about... Um, today's message, I guess, is, uh, is, is titled A Life Fully Surrendered. And like Carlin said, my name is, is Steve Antle, and I don't know if, if you realize this or not, but I was actually born on a magical island. <laughs> I know it doesn't necessarily look like that, but I really was. You know, we, we, we have affectionately known it as the rock. Um, but many of you might know it as the farthest east province, as the uh, as the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. And uh, my beautiful mum and my brothers here today. Woo! You know what? I'm gonna just uh, I'm just gonna fair warn you um, that uh, the Antle clan is, um, is a, a group of people who really um, have their heart on their sleeve at all times. And if you knew my father, who was promoted to glory about uh, three years ago, you'd know um, that I come by it at least honestly. You know, uh, at his 60th birthday, he actually, like, it was actually sponsored by Kleenex. That's, that's, how, that's how much we, we bawl our eyes out, especially when it comes to the Lord. We are so excited. Can I take a few seconds here? Can, can we just stand on our feet? This is something I've been wanting to do ever since um, Christy and I started coming here. Um, I know Paul and Jess are, are watching at home, but I really want to honor Paul and Jess Martins and the entire elder team and everyone who really pours their life out into this church. And I really would love for us to give them a real... Um, healthy round of applause. Can we just do that? We thank you so much for your service here. All right. Praise the Lord. Okay, be seated. Well, my, my parents, um, we, they, they migrated here in 1985 uh, with their five children. Uh, and we came all the way uh, west to Winnipeg. My dad was. Uh, th- my dad got a job with a trucking company. And I tell you, if it was the only reason why we came here, is for many years later, whew, for me to meet my beautiful wife. <laughs> you are an incredible treasure, and I love you so much. And I thank you so much for your support. Um, I'm going to give a. a A little bit of a a disclaimer this morning, Um, when I was studying this material, and uh, if you want to take your Bibles, you can go to chapter uh, 14 of Luke, Luke chapter 14, while I was studying this material, um, you know, Hebrews 4.12 really did come alive. God's Word is alive and active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword, when I was studying this scripture, it split me open. I was on God's operating table while I was pouring myself out going, God, I want deeper meaning of what you're saying here in this scripture. And I believe that it, he gave me a word um, to really have us understand what he's saying and to go deep. So we can start, um, we can start at Luke 14, chapter 1, or sorry, verse 1 to 6. One Sabbath, when he, was, he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully, and behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he, then he took him and healed him and sent him away. What an interesting fact. That while everyone was just reclining at this party, this man came to the party to get healed. And he's like, look, I'm going to give you what you wanted, but you can be released. I love you. Right? We know that God loves um, his children and wants us healed. Amen? And so uh, he says, but they remained silent. They took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? They could not reply to these things. So I'm not that smart. I had to look up what dropsy meant. It's a condition commonly known as edema. It's the swelling of the soft tissues due to an accumulation of excess water. The nurses in the house would probably fully understand what edema is. It usually manifests in your hands and your feet and it's usually associated with a condition called um, congestive heart failure. And Jesus does what Jesus does. He heals people on the Sabbath, no less. He's interested in shattering every last religious paradigm and hypocrisy that they had. I know I am thankful this morning that I know Jehovah Rapha, the one who heals. God has healed me in ways that you can't even imagine. You're standing and looking directly at a miracle. For me to be standing here and preaching to you is an absolute miracle. He says two things. He says, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath, they will not immediately pull him out? He's trying to get to their heart and understand that look, even even when he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. These are not things that matter to me. I'm, I have come for the sick. I've come for the broken. I've come to heal people. And Jesus tells two parables that really want to get to the heart of, of, of that religious hypocrisy. And he says two parables. Parable of the wedding feast, and we'll get into it here at Luke 14, verse four, 7 to 14. Now he began telling a parable to invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, Whenever you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And the one who invited you both will come to you and say, Give your place to this person. And then in disgrace you will proceed to occupy the last place. But whenever you are invited, go and take Go and take the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes and says to you, Friend, move up to the higher place, and then you will have honor in the sight of all who are dining at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There is two really key principles here, kingdom principles, that I really want to share with you today. And that the, the first kingdom principle is for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who ex- humbles himself will be exalted. God is looking for fully surrendered servants in service to him and in service to each other. He wants our love to be vertical and horizontal. It's in others' first kingdom. It is a do unto others as you would have them do to you, kingdom. It's a kingdom laid down in service to him and to others. And to really obey your master. Jesus continues in Luke 14:12. He says, Now also he went on to say to the one who had invited him, Whenever you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor wealthy neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you to a meal in return. And that will be your repayment. But whenever you give a banquet, invite people who are poor, who have disabilities, who are limping, and people who are blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you. This is a good part, guys. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That is such an incredibly fantastic promise. Everything that we do to lay our lives down, for him and for others, it's going to be repaid. We're storing up treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves can't come in and steal. And is that our focus? Is that our focus? Whatever it costs you to follow Jesus, let me tell you, it's worth it. It's abundantly worth it. Parable, parable number two of the great banquet. Jesus drops the gospel message listen to this he says when one of you who is reclined at the t- one of the, one of those who were reclined at the table with him heard these things and he said to him blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of god but he said to him a man once gave a great banquet and invited many and at the time for the banquet he sent his servant to those to say to those who had been invited come for everything is ready now But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go to see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five oak of Yaxan. I got to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry, and he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city, and bring in the poor, whew, the cripple, and the blind, and the lame. I can identify with that. I was so broken. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. There's still room yes. for your neighbors, yeah. for people that don't know, your family members who yes. don't know or not fully surrendered To the Lord, there's room in his kingdom. If there's room in his kingdom for me, woo! there's room in the kingdom for anybody. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges. Compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these who were invited shall taste my banquet. We have to understand here, culturally, um, these excuses that they made, that they were saying, hey, look, um, I, I've, got, I've got a field and I've got to go see it. I've got five oxen, i got to go check them out. In first century Israel, the Jewish nation, no one would have bought a field that they wouldn't have gone and checked out. They wouldn't have bought oxen that they wouldn't have checked out. Jesus is explaining to his, his, his audience that these are incredibly lame excuses. They're not excuses that make any sense. Um, culturally, even, um, if you just got married, there's no reason why you can't go to a party <laughs> at all. And the master set, is upset. He sends out his servant to go, and he says, bring anyone else who will come. The ones who are desperate in need of a physician Guys, that's all of us. We all need the grace and the mercy of God. Every single one of us. We need it desperately. We need it more than the breath in our lungs and and the blood that flows through our veins. We need his grace. Listen to this. He sends out his servant again, and he says in verse 23, go out into the highway and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. Culturally, they would have known precisely that Jesus was inviting the Gentile nation. The Gentiles, were, their settlements were along the highways and along the hedges. And they were, their minds would have been completely blown. Because when he, he, he the, the man reclining at the table, and says, blessed is the man, blessed is the people who, who are eating bread in the kingdom of God. He's essentially saying, you know, if, if, you're, if you're Jewish, we're in. This is amazing news. Blessed are those who will eat ki- bread in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus set him straight and said that, look, there's other people who are gonna be invited here. This is kingdom principle number two before we get into what it's going to cost us to follow him, God's grace is available to all that come. Man, that's good news. It's for lost sheep and for those who have never strayed. It's for those who have squandered their inheritance and came back home. It's for the sons that stayed with their father and had a poor attitude. It's for the Jew and the Gentile, all who come to the Father's Father's footsteps and lay down their will and say, God, I, I'm, I don't want to serve myself anymore. I want what you have in my life. God wants heaven filled with people who won't make excuses, who fully surrender. God, guys, has anyone ever made an excuse when it comes to their relationship with God? I have. We have. I mean, there's been times where I've made excuses not to come to church, to really gather with his body of believers. Listen to this verse very carefully in verse 24. It says, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Do you ever think about missing the banquet? I sometimes do. i, I got to be honest. I'm a professional optimist. I consider myself to be an absolute pro. My cup is not half full. My cup is overflowing. Amen? Who, who, else, who else here has a cup that overflows? Yes. Absolutely. Hallelujah. But the word of the Lord says that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? We don't have anything to fear in this world, ever, than himself. These words should sober us up, and I mean everyone. The most scary word in the entire Bible, to me, is many. It's frightening. Matthew 7, 21, 23 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one, listen here, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. We we have to let these words split us open from top to bottom. Many will say to me, many, many, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, cast out demons, and in your name, perform miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me who practice lawlessness. Guys, we have to understand that this is not just the average everyday Christian. Average everyday Christians don't cast out demons, they don't do miracles. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's, that's just the, the way it is. Not everyone is casting out demons. Not everybody's prophesying in his name. But these are people who called him Lord, who would have 100% thought that they were going to make it in. And he says, I never knew you. That Greek word is genosko, it means to do, as, as a man knows a woman, if you know what I'm saying, it's intimacy. Do Are we intimate with God on a regular basis? Do we know him? He knows us. He created us from dust. Long before the, we, he, he laid the foundations of the earth, he knew you. But it's important for us to desperately know him. Look, we all love John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish. We can't stop reading there. Two verses later in John 3.18, he says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. These are his words, and it's harsh. But it's true because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We're not even outside of the chapter yet. And in John 3.36, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. He's confirming John 3.16. But he says, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I I don't know if there's anything that could possibly place a little bit of fear in a human heart, than having the wrath of God still remain on you. That, these are sobering words, and they're not mine. These are words that I allow I, I allow God to tear me open on a regular basis. But those who were invited and didn't come, he says, shall not taste his banquet. The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he will enter. Look, we have to be abundantly clear. Not everybody makes the banquet and not everybody who thinks they're in is going to enter. This is based on scripture, not my, not my thoughts. And it's gotta, be, it's gotta be sobering. But look, there's good news here. There's incredibly good news in this. See, he sent out all of the invites. He's done all the preparing. He's paid for the price of your admission. And he's even taken up your banquet clothes. And he's hand-delivered them to your front door. Knocked on the door and hand-delivered them to your hands. That's his righteousness. Righteousness. His righteousness. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But in Christ Jesus alone. In Christ Jesus alone. We do not have a shred of righteousness on our own. But in Christ we have it all. Everything that we'll ever possibly dream of. We have everything. But what do we do? What is our end of the bargain? Surrender Everything. Everything. Do the will of Father of the Father in heaven. Here's the catch, guys. He's given us his banquet clothes. But we have to show up. We have to show up in our marriages, in our, in our parenting. Kids, you have to show up in school. We have to show up in our churches. And I'm not just saying, attending. We have to show up and live authentic, uh, uh, an authentic faith as Dwayne talked about last week. An authentic life. The only way that we, can, that we can even come close to having and living an authentic life is full surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's it. It's the only way. He's worth it. He's worth it. Look, if we can narrow it down, the kingdom message is all of you for all of him for all of eternity. (laughs) That's good news. We can't possibly imagine better news than that. We are all sitting on top of an endless mountain of God's grace and mercy, and He's poured it out in abundance, there is nothing of Himself that He is not limiting for you and I. It's mind-boggling to understand that God, a God who just thinks in stars and planets and galaxies just starts spinning into motion. He desires to know you. He desires to be intimate with you, That is, I think, the hardest part of the gospel message entirely. I woke up this morning. I woke up this morning at 2.30 in the morning. And it's that intimacy that I can't get away from. Because the minute I, I even recognize that it's a new day and it's in the middle of the night, he starts pouring his love and affection on me. Saying, Stephen, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you that you're walking in my ways, that you love me. He's not saying all of the things that I'm not. And God only knows that there are lots of things that I'm not. But he loves to pour in his intimacy and tell me all of the things. He's corrected me many times. But this morning he woke me up There's an old song. I'm sure mommy remember. Don't tell me, my friend, that God is dead. He woke me up this morning. (laughs) It's so real. God is so real. And if you just give him a chance, if you just give him a chance, he's there. Now our main passage, this this is all the lead up to Luke 14, 25 to 35. It says, now great crowds accompanied him And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. For which one of you desiring to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." First thing that stands out to me here is large crowds. We love, in Christianity, we love large crowds. I would want nothing more than this church to be filled, absolute to capacity, with everybody waiting in the back, standing, this whole town being turned upside down for Jesus and his kingdom and his ways. I would love nothing more. But Jesus sees large crowds, and get skeptical. Yeah. Yeah. In Christianity, we, we really do. We love large crowds. But he uses harsh language here. You know, we have the, we have the privilege of, of many learned theologians and scholars. Year after year. Scouring for centuries. Scouring over this text. For deep meaning. And what did they have while they were just walking down the road with Jesus? He just. Yeah, so any of you who wants to follow me, you hate your mother, father, sister, brother, even your own lives. You gotta be willing to pick up your cross. That's what they got. We (laughs) I, I could just imagine somebody in the crowd, right? Like, dude, did he just say hate my family? Yeah, that's pretty much what he said. Did he say, sorry, <laughs> I'm pretty sure he didn't say carry your own cross. Yeah, no, that, that's, really what, <laughs> that's really what he said. Look, many in the crowd, we, we have to understand historically many in that crowd who were following him where Jesus came on scene and everyone is talking and whispering about the fact that the Messiah has come. And it's good news, and they're shouting Hosanna. And they're coming unglued because this man is doing miracles. He's teaching with authority that no one else has taught before. I, I, I can't imagine when, when somebody says, carry your cross. They were intimate with understanding the cross. Many of the people that were following him that day would have quite possibly had family members and friends who were crucified by the Roman Empire. It was their go-to. When crowds got out of hand, they're like, we need to stick some poles in the ground and, and crucify people and get these people straight and understand who's in charge here. It's terrifying. Like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on my friend Corbin here because I really love him. But I can't imagine. If we're, we're, we're too... First century Jews, and just last week, our, our, our family and our friends watched you get crucified, and we're horrified by it, and we're missing you, and we're longing to have him with us again, and we, we, we find this Messiah, everyone else has found this Messiah, and we're so excited that this Messiah is now here, and he's going to save us from Roman rule, and he says the words, unless you carry your cross. He didn't say, unless you carry my cross. He said, unless you carry your cross, you cannot be my disciple. Honestly, I'd be like, I, I just watched my close friend get crucified last week. You're telling me i got to pick up my cross and be your disciple? Come on, we have to tear apart this the, the scripture and enter into it. That's why they call it a passage of scripture. Unless we, unless we put ourselves in that position and understand what he's saying, it's heavy. But look, Jesus was only confirming what God has always said in the Old Testament. Countless times throughout the Old Testament, God described himself as a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4.24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Exodus 34.14 said, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Former Netherlands prime minister and theologian Abraham Kuyper once said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! It's all His, and that includes you and I. We are all His, and even the people on this earth that do not proclaim Him as Lord, they're His. He'll have the final say, whether He says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Come, come. I've been waiting, I've been waiting for this day to have you come and enter into my, I want you to enter into my rest or away from me, depart from me, I never knew you. Those are the only two responses we're going to get and it's based on what we, what he's done and how much we've believed what he's done. Do we believe that it's finished? Do we believe what it's finished? Dwayne quoted last week, 1 Corinthians 6. He says, you are not your own for you're bought with a price. He's not interested in sharing the throne of your heart with anyone. Anyone or anything. I love my wife. And I love my kids. And I love my friends. But there is no way. There's no way I'm going to be able to love them more than I have to love God. He has to be number one. The lordship of Jesus Christ has to be, um, has to be on my life. It has to show. Look, Larry, Larry. There's we we know. I think at least I do that. You you love your wife. I, I see it on you. I see that how you interact. I'm I'm a big fan of just watching people. And I know that you love your wife, but no one would believe if you professed your love in, to Ina. But you, you came around once a week, you gave her a high five, and you left for the rest of the week. No one, would prof- no one would even come close to thinking that you actually loved your wife. And sometimes that's what we do. We go, oh, it's just what I believe, man. It's just what I believe. You can believe Jesus is Lord, but man, the demons believe and they shudder. It is really, it, it, is, it is the feet on the ground, the meat and the potatoes of how we live our life that we're going to be judged by. We can't just say that it's, I, 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 I professed. We know. They said, didn't, Lord, Lord, didn't we, need, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? It's not going to cut it. It's not going to cut it to get into, um, into his kingdom. We need to absolutely be able to echo what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. There is a massive difference between professing Christ and possessing Christ and having Christ possess you. Yes. Does, do, do, do you, are you possessed by every thought, everything that comes into your mind? God, I'm yours and you're mine. That's what the Bible says. You're mine and I'm not going to let you go. I know what it's like to have lived my life without you, and there's no way I'm going to let you go. But here's a few sobering statistics. Past Gallup polls suggest that fewer than 10% of professing evangelical Christians are deeply committed and put their faith into action. Similarly, George Barna found that only 46% of Christians polled read their Bible only once a week or not at all. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German Lutheran pastor during the Second World War who was martyred, he once quoted, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. Jesus echoes that in Matthew 16:25 when he says, for whoever wishes... To save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake. We can't just lose our life, guys. We need to lose our life for his sake. And you're going to find it. Jesus shares two illustrations, building a tower and going to war. I had the privilege of speaking with Larry and, and, uh, and Duane, a couple of our uh, resident builders here at LCF. And uh, I just wanted to to chat with them about their process of of what they do to count up the cost for when they do a project. Dwight said something really cool. He said that up to 90% of the work is complete before the shovel, first shovel ever hits the ground. It's in the planning stage. They account to the best of their ability for every contingency that could possibly go wrong because they know at best that it could be a financial blessing And at worst, depending on how the project is, could be complete financial ruin, if it's not. If you don't, count up the cost. I have a friend of mine who works in the Canadian military, and he says the same thing. Before the Canadian military ever put boots on the ground, there is an incredible amount of planning that goes into an offensive operation. And he said something so amazing. He said, the biggest reason why they spend a lot of money is because they know the value of human life. God knows the value of your human life, Carlin. Trev, God knows the value of your human life. There's two absolutes that Jesus says here at the end of this passage. He says, therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he he has. All that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, no one can come before me and no thing can come before me. I require full surrender. It's all of you for all of me for all of eternity. And God is a jealous God, and for rightly so, right? He created us, he redeemed us, sets us free, he he purchases us with his his blood. The only genuine response to live an authentic faith to what God has done for us is, God, when it comes to me, I'm going to give you what you paid for. Are we going to give him what he paid for? Every part of us is His. Now this conflict in, in uh, uh, Afghanistan, we, we think sometimes in the West that the cost of following Jesus is drastically different than the cost of following Jesus in Iran, Syria, Pakistan, India, China. But the cost to follow Jesus is the same here as it is there. The only difference, honestly, the only difference, is that when they profess Christ, they don't even have to go and even be willing to hate their mother and their brother and their sister and their children. Their whole family will turn on them the minute they profess Christ. And are we there yet I really feel in this spirit that eventually, before the end of days, persecution is coming to us. And we have to have a church that's ready for that. To be fully surrendered. To be fully surrendered. To not have one single thing or person in front of the lordship of Jesus Christ. There are people in Afghanistan today today, that are literally waiting for the door to be knocked down and be martyred for Jesus. They're just waiting. Can you imagine sitting under the weight of that? And Have you or I counted up the cost? There's a phenomenal scripture in uh, Deuteronomy 15 and, and Exodus 21. Exodus 21 5 says, but if a slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go free, then the master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door With the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl. You say awl? All. And he shall be his slave forever. Deuteronomy 15, verse 16 and 17. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you in your household. Since he is well off with you. Then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear in the door. And he shall be your slave forever. That's someone that's fully surrendered. But listen here. That's someone that's fully surrendered knowing that my life, my life is better off in your hands than in my hands. Because when it was in my hands, I wasted it on prodigal living. At least I did. Maybe that's not your story. But I'm, I know if I, was taken, if I was to come and take over charge of my life again, it would be in shambles in probably 2.5 seconds. I have had to surrender my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I know he has shown me his faithfulness time and time again, that whatever I've given him, it's worth it. It's worth it. We can't completely abandon it what Jesus says at the end of Luke 14. He talks about the cost of following him and he turns around and he makes a really strange statement. He says, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. This is again some pretty offensive language. But he clearly demands us to keep our saltiness. You know what's the best news about being salty in the reference that he's talking about? Is that we cannot be salty without him. He's the one that adds flavor to our lives. Amen? He's the only one that's highly sought after. He's the one that preserves things from being spoiled and he knows we cannot remain salty without him. I think it's kind of <clears throat> I don't know maybe maybe not funny for you but I just can't imagine standing in God's manure pile and him saying like get off of that your unsaltiness is going to ruin it. <laughs> it's, it's some serious business like he's like get out of my manure you're going to renew you're just going to ruin it. Look, I love the story of the rich young ruler. I really do. It's found in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it's a story of someone who counted up the cost and went away sad and missed the boat. I'd rather share with you a story from the Bible that gets me every time I read it. It's found in Acts 4 and 5. Disciples Peter and John are arrested for healing a man just outside the temple at the beautiful gate. And they're brought to the religious leaders and they want to know how the man that was just healed, what authority, how, how, did, you, how did you heal him? And he says, look, by, the, by Jesus Christ, the one you crucified, that's, that's the power that we're doing this. And they demand that they no longer speak or teach in the name of Jesus Listen to Peter's response here. He says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's saltiness. That's saltiness right there. That's a little sweet and sour. They get released, and they go right back to doing what they were doing. Is preaching the word of God and it's long before they're arrested again. This time there's an angelic jailbreak. And where do they go? Acts 25, 5:25 says, and someone came to them and told them, the Pharisees, look, the men whom you have put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. That's more salt. That's a faith that can't be crushed. It gets better. They get arrested this time, but they get flogged. Now, this isn't just like, you know, just like a light little spanking. This would have been with a whip, and it would have, they most likely would have got 39 lashes, the legal amount that a Jew could have based on Deuteronomy, um, based uh, on on Deuteronomy, 25, 2 to 3. These guys would have watched their friends get their backs torn open. Just waiting for theirs. It's a a real faith. It's a real faith, guys. Their first thought when it's all said and done after every single 12 of the apostles or uh, the disciples got their backs torn open. And no doubt they were in agonizing pain. Acts 5 41 and 42 says, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they have been considered worthy to suffer shame for their name, for his name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Guys, that is what it looks like to be fully surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ. These 12 men with faith like that turned the entire world upside down. And there isn't probably a single place on this planet where there is somebody that professes Jesus as lord. And that started with a faith like that. I am convinced, every single bit of me is convinced that you and I, in this room right now, there's more than 12 of us here. If we are completely, 100% sold out for the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're no longer afraid of anything, especially when it, means, when it comes to sharing your testimony and sharing what God has done in your life, you're done with that. You're done with being fearful of sharing Jesus with your neighbors, With people that you meet on the street, you're done with it because he's worth it. He's worth it. And if we in this room alone have that kind of faith, we can do it again. We can turn this world upside down for Jesus before he returns. I don't want anybody. It grieves me some days that the, the that the men and women i know even from the fire department that i know are so far off from god like i was they would n- they would definitely not profess him as lord i don't want them to miss the banquet i don't want my ex-wife who's, who is who who's the the mother of my 21-year-old son i don't want her to miss the banquet I don't want anybody to miss the banquet. We know based on scripture there are people, many, that will. Do you and I want to miss out on the banquet? It is based on what Jesus has done, but it is also our part to believe and live authentic lives of faith, lay down servants for him. We have to. Jen, I'd like to invite you and, and the band to come back. I'm just kind of wrapping up my, uh, my message here now. If there was anything that I could really encourage this church and everyone in this room to do, I would encourage you to fall in love with the words on the page, pages of the 66 books contained in the Bible. And moreover, fall in love. (laughs) Fall in love with the God who inspired men to write it. Fall in love with him. If you get alone with him and you get intimate with him, there is nothing, there is no place on this earth that is more important than that. I promise you. For an incredibly large portion of my 35 year, first 35 years on this planet, I squandered my inheritance in prodigal living. I really did. And if you knew who I used to be, you'd understand that it's a miracle that I'm standing here. It's a miracle that I am professing Jesus as Lord, but I love to speak and teach on His Word I spent years serving my wants and my desires and all I had to show for it was a shattered, broken, lonely existence without hope. But God, who is rich in mercy, he sent me an angel in the form of this beautiful woman right here. She proved that Proverbs 25, is true. Like apples of gold and settings of silver is a word spoken at the proper time. She told me to surrender my life to Jesus and he would mend every part of me that was broken. Praise God. She told me that he was a God who would never leave me, never forsake me and love me more than anyone possibly could. She said, give him your life for three months, six months. Surrender everything of your brokenness to him and watch him do a miracle. She spoke truth in a timely manner when I needed to hear it most. And that night I decided to surrender my life to the Lord and I did it in pieces over years. But that night I decided to take my mom's word for it and go after the Lord Jesus Christ. And he showed up. He showed up. He showed up to my party. He's a good God. Look, maybe we're excuse me, maybe we're hearing this, this message for the first time. Maybe, maybe we've, we've been a little bit lazy. I, I, I can be honest with you. I have been in that spot where I've been lazy with my faith. But he wants us fully surrendered. He wants it to be all of you for all of him, for all of eternity. He does not want a single person to miss out on the banquet. The greatest treasure that heaven will ever offer is something that we can experience here and now. I experienced it when Jen was playing songs and you guys were singing. I experienced the very throne room of God coming down. He dwells in and in inhabits the praises of his people. My wife was teaching our kids last night that in, ja- in, in the Japanese language, it says that God's throne room comes down in the midst of them. What, what a thought. God's presence is the thing that we need to seek and want more than anything else in this life because it's the thing that's going to bring us peace and joy in the most horrific storms. There's people in Afghanistan today that have counted up the cost and will gladly lay their life down because they've found out that Jesus is worth it. This altar is going to be open for anyone who wants to come and be honest with yourself. Am I living an authentic faith, a real faith? Or am I in threat of missing the banquet because I haven't counted up the cost? He's worth it, folks. I can't begin to tell you that he's worth it. Thank you, Jesus. Father, it's your prayer that you would stir hearts right now. Touch everybody who hears this message. God, it's you that we want. In this church at LCF, it's you that we want. We want you more than anything else. It's your presence, God.